This is Sunrise, the who, what, when, where, why, and WTF of Florida politics. I'm Rick Flagg reporting from Tallahassee, where the primary is done, and it's on to November. We'll be talking about Tuesday's results with Sunrise resident pollster and pundit Steve Vancor. We'll also hear from the state's chief elections officer, who says the primary went pretty well. We are very grateful to the FBI, the Department of Homeland Security, the Postal Inspection Service, FDLE, and our local law enforcement partners across the state for their work to keep our elections and Florida's voters secure and protected. There are no reported security issues. The death toll from COVID-19 is getting close to the 10,000 mark. The health department reported another 216 fatalities Tuesday, increasing the statewide death toll to 9,893. 96 of those new fatalities were in nursing homes or long-term care. Officials also confirmed almost 4,000 new cases of coronavirus Tuesday, increasing the statewide total to almost 580,000. And there are almost 5,500 COVID-19 patients in Florida hospitals right now. The voting rights of former felons are about to be decided by a federal appeals court in Atlanta, where the governor is appealing a decision that says Florida's plan for restoring voting rights amounts to an illegal pay-to-vote scheme. We're asking this court to uphold a foundational principle that when it comes to voting, the size of a person's pocketbook alone should never dictate access to the ballot box. The timing couldn't have been any more appropriate. The case was heard the same day Floridians were voting in the primary. We'll also have your calendar of political events and check in with a Florida woman who lost her job as a cop because of her Twitter bio, proclaiming she was a member of the KKK. And now the top stories on Sunrise for Wednesday, August 19th. First, let's go to the phones. We're talking now with Steve Vancor. He's our in-house political... Well, he doesn't like the term guru. He just likes to be called an expert who has earned his stripes in the field. It's Steve Vancor, and he is a, a, a pollster, pundit, all-around great guy, and he's in a very special place, uh, a sort of a, a, well, an infamous spot in Florida electoral history. The dark star of Florida electoral history. I'm at the, I started my day at the Broward County Emergency Operations Center, and I am now at the, the ballot counting tabulation, cam, watching the canvassing board count ballots, putting them up on the screen and all that kind of good stuff. So Broward County Central and proud to say under the leadership of uh, Peter Antonacci, uh, you know, it's, it's, we're not at all competitive down here. We were the first um, South Florida County to post. We posted up about 85% of our numbers right at about 703. And uh, of course, everybody's looking, how did Palm Beach do? How did Miami do? And they would, 30, 40 minutes behind us, so we're, we're pretty happy about that. Well, quite a turnaround in Broward there, just a few short uh, that's, that That's what the idea was. That's what the idea was, I mean, and, and it looks good. And, and numbers are coming in. They're strong. Everything. I mean, it's really an interesting process, Rick, when you really stop it. 577 precincts uh, starting at 6 a.m. We're getting people logged in, getting them on the board, getting them up, getting the machines up and operational. It's, it's quite, a, quite a long day, but uh, really, really cool. All right, so you've had a chance to look over some of the – races in the Florida House and the Florida Senate, and you have a theory as to what happened today. Well, I think the establishment won today. Um, if you look at, um, like, look at Wilton Simpson, he had a couple of uh, goals coming out of this primary. I think he got all of them. Jennifer Bradley, Rob Bradley's wife, won. Uh, this is the last time, uh, Rick, that we get to say Benjamin Alexander Thaddeus John Harbowie. Uh, that's the person who was challenging Marva Harris Preston, their chosen candidate in Senate District 3. He only got 21 percent. 
Uh, Heather Fitzenhagen, remember, jumped in last minute and was started out ahead in the polls against Ray Rod. Uh, he beat her three to one. Uh, so uh, if you look at uh, what, what, what Wilton Simpson attempted to do and his team attempted to do, I'd say they, they feel pretty good tonight. They set the playing field. They forced Javi Fernandez in a competitive Senate 39 race and um, Patricia Sigmund in a competitive Senate 9 race to spend money to defend their seats. They won those seats handily, but they had to spend money to defend them. So I think if you look at that side, Senate leadership had a good night. But on the other hand, so did the Democrats. Uh, there was two races that were very interesting. You had Tina Polsky and Irv Schlossberg. Full disclosure, I worked for Tina Polsky. Uh, we crushed Irv Schlossberg. Well, why was that important? Because when Irv was in the House, he broke ranks with the Democrats and voted for the Republican reapportionment plan. You can't have that if you're Gary Farmer going into reapportionment. So Tina won handily uh, with almost 70 percent of the vote. The other one was Chev Jones against really Daphne Campbell. Uh, I know uh, Reggie Cardoza did that race, did a great job. But Senate Vickery also stepped in to make sure Chev won. And he did. He won handily. He almost got 50 percent in the field of six. So oh, you got 43 percent in the field of six. So he's I, he's got to feel good. He's got Tina as a solid Democrat. He's got Daphne Campbell out and Chev Jones in good. Uh, Javi Fernandez and Patricia Sigmund win, and Chef Jones wins. So, if you're if you're Gary Farmer, you're going to bed tonight feeling pretty good as well. So the the the, the two generals on both sides, I think the establishment won there. Uh, looking at other establishment figures, uh, of course, I started with Pete Antonacci. Remember Rick Scott appointee? People in Broward County were kind of nervous about that, but they're now having a, a very well run election. I think they're pretty happy about that. So. Rick's got establishment one. Yeah, I don't think anyone's ever uh, and, disputed Pete Antonacci's talents or skills. They, they just think he's got a bad attitude. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, he came out of Tallahassee. What do you expect? I mean, I mean, the poor guy had to work up here for so long before he could escape town. But All of us have bad attitudes up here. <laughs> that's exactly right. Big, big win for um, uh, Governor DeSantis. His uh, uh, hand-picked successor throws out um, Scott Israel. And uh, Gregory Tony, uh, it was close. Uh, squeezes out a victory. And anything surprise you in the state house of representatives? I know that there's a lot of races out there. Well, similarly, um, uh, you know, you saw Al Jaquette go down. Uh, you saw uh, Kim Daniels go down. Mike Hill go down. These, I'll call them cultural outliers from the house again. The establishment won. Those were anti-establishment candidates. Even though Al Jaquette was on Keone McGee's leadership team, he was a bit of an oddball in the process. And and, and those folks all lost. And uh, now Anika Humphrey, Humphrey uh, barely hung on to her seat. She was challenged and had a serious challenge. I think she got 50, 50 point something uh, percent of the vote. So she was, she was the exception to the rule of these uh, non-establishment candidates going down. By the way, Al Jaquette lost almost two to one, to a really good guy named Omari Hardy. He's a former city commissioner from Lake Worth, now Lake Worth Beach, the only city in Florida that has two bodies of water in its name. Uh, uh, so he, You're he, just a font of, of useless information tonight. <laughs> well, I actually came down and testified before they committed. They had hired my firm to help him with that. And I'm like, you, got, you guys really bought two bodies of water in your name? And really, I was like the only person in the room that that had dawned on. So I, 
I found that to be kind of funny. Uh, but they passed it. The voters voted to, to to change the name. So as of right now, Onika is Anika is up fifty point eight. Uh, looks like she's going to hold on there as well. So uh, yeah, they, so the establishment seems to have had a good night. The um, Danny Perez held on to his seat. And I remember uh, the past establishment, uh, Jose Oliva. Went after him and uh, went the after him big establishment. time. What, like half a went million bucks? Time, yeah. yeah, yeah, and he held on. So uh, uh, and he held on quite handily. I mean, he went with fifty nine percent of the vote. So uh, that's my theory. I'll stick to it. Uh, establishment, good night for the establishment. All right, that should do it. I guess we'll do this again in November, huh? All right, Rick. Take care, man. All right, take care, Steve. In other election news, the state's chief elections officer, Secretary of State Laurel Lee, says everything seems to have gone well on primary day. In checking in with supervisors of elections throughout the day, we have learned that voter turnout uh, today was light to medium as expected, given the contests and the measures that were presented on their ballots. From what we can tell at this point, however, the combined voter turnout between early voting, vote by mail, and election day voting is higher than average for a primary election. I also want to add that today was a good day for Florida. What we have seen here today is the culmination of months of preparation, hard work, and cooperation between supervisors of election, their staff, poll workers, law enforcement, our team at the Department of State, and Florida voters. But today was not the finish line. We still have much work to do to prepare for November's presidential election to ensure that voters are registered and aware of their voting options. Uh, we do anticipate that there will be much higher turnout at November's presidential election uh, than we had today. And we will work every day between now and then to ensure that we are prepared for any challenges that lie ahead. We are very fortunate to work with our partners in the elections community and in the law enforcement community. And we are committed to continuing to work with those partners to ensure that our November elections are secure and accurate and that Florida voters and election workers are protected. But it wouldn't be a Florida election unless someone somewhere screwed up. Lee says there was the case of a Democrat in Collier County who was told he couldn't vote because this was a Republican primary. We did receive a report uh, that a voter received inaccurate information uh, at, at a precinct. Uh, one thing that is important to bear in mind is that in Florida, we have close to 6,000 precincts and tens of thousands of election workers. Uh, this voter uh, did the right thing and contacted the supervisor of elections office to get accurate information. Uh, my understanding is that uh, that situation was resolved appropriately and that that voter was able to vote. The fate of Florida's law restoring voting rights to former felons is now in the hands of the United States Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit in Atlanta. The entire court convened Tuesday to consider Amendment 4, approved by voters in 2018, and Senate Bill 7066. That's the law passed by the legislature to implement the amendment. Now, a federal judge in Tallahassee has already ruled that the Senate bill is unconstitutional because it requires former felons who don't have any money to pay all the fines, fees, and restitutions before they can vote. The governor's office is appealing that decision, and his attorney, Charles Cooper, told the court that decision was wrong. The principal question before you today is whether a central requirement of Amendment 4, namely that all felons complete all financial terms of their sentences, is unconstitutional as applied to felons who are genuinely unable to pay them. 
The district court held that it is unconstitutional and it ordered that such felons be immediately re-enfranchised while felons who are able to pay must continue to do so. The district court also held that requiring felons to pay court fees and costs violated the 24th Amendment's ban on imposing a tax on the right to vote. The district court made several legal errors, but the most fundamental error made by the district court was a factual one. The Jones panel put it this way, it is undeniable that LFO requirement punishes those who cannot pay more harshly than those who can. This fact was the fulcrum of the court's entire analysis, but not only is it deniable, it is wrong. Amendment four punishes no one. The financial terms of a felon's sentence were imposed because he committed a felony and the state's continuing demand that he pay them is not some new and different punishment. But now look at them through the lens of the district court's injunction. The wealthy felon cannot vote until he has satisfied his punishment in full by paying his fine. But the district court's order effectively commutes the impecunious felon's fine insofar as, as his voting rights are concerned. Now that last claim is interesting. The governor's lawyer is basically saying it's unfair to make affluent people pay up to have their voting rights restored while indigent people can get away without having to pay. ACLU of Florida legal director Nancy Abudu wasn't really impressed. What this court has just heard is that the state does not have a single legitimate constitutional or statutory argument to uphold those portions of Senate Bill 7066 that bar people from voting solely based on their economic status. Moreover, this court's questions to the state reveal the very serious doctrinal and practical consequences that will flow from conditioning the right to vote on the payment of LFOs for those who are genuinely unable to pay. The doctrinal consequence, of course, is defying Supreme Court precedent, striking down burdensome voter qualifications, especially those that are extremely difficult, if not impossible, to satisfy. The practical consequence is the erosion of our democratic principles if this court adopts the state's position as it applies to lower income and poor people in our society in denial of their franchise based solely on their class. Many of the people impacted by Senate Bill 7066 were poor enough that the state was required to assign them a court-appointed attorney. Many of them still struggle to find gainful employment that pays a living wage, and 80% of those with LFOs cannot pay them off. Definitely not in time for today's Florida primary, not by November's election, and many will never be able to vote under Senate Bill 7066. The state already knows that these individuals who understandably are focused on putting food on the table and a roof over their heads do not have the financial resources to pay to vote. That is why cases like Griffin v. Illinois and Bearden and Harper protect the most economically and politically vulnerable in our society, which our clients are. These cases affirm that the Due Process Clause and the Equal Protection Clause guard against government overreach, like in the case of Florida, which in violation of Harper has absolutely made our clients affluence of voter qualification. 
The due process clause demands basic protections when it comes to notice of voter eligibility and a reliable and efficient procedure through which to confirm that eligibility. And finally, today is Florida's primary election and newly enfranchised people who do not have LFOs are voting for the first time in years. So this case is not about Amendment 4 in its entirety. It is about the larger group of people who remain marginalized and excluded from our democracy simply because they cannot afford to be part of it. Therefore, we're asking this court to uphold a foundational principle that when it comes to voting, the size of a person's pocketbook alone should never dictate access to the ballot box. A three-judge panel of the circuit court has already ruled against the state in this case. The governor is hoping for a different ruling now that all of the judges will vote. Now, there are 12 judges on the court. Three of them recused themselves from the case. Nine took part in the hearing, including two former justices of the Florida Supreme Court who essentially owe their jobs to Governor DeSantis. It'll be interesting to see how Barbara Lagoa and Robert Luck vote on this one. Luck didn't say much during the hearing, but Lagoa sounded rather sympathetic to the governor's appeal, asking questions that propped up the state's argument and raising the possibility of throwing out a constitutional amendment approved by almost 65% of Florida's voters. Your calendar of events begins at 10. That's when the Florida Chamber Foundation concludes its Virtual Business Leader Summit on Prosperity and Economic Opportunity. This session will be about transportation and affordable housing. The Commission on Offender Review meets by conference call at 9. The Reemployment Assistance Appeals Commission meets at 9.30. AT&T Florida President Joe York, who also serves on the State Board of Education and Enterprise Florida, will speak during an online meeting of the Flagler Tiger Bay Club at 12.15. The Florida Cybersecurity Task Force meets by conference call at 2. And the Florida Development Finance Board of Directors meets at 2 in Winter Springs. Finally today, a Florida woman who worked as a police officer at the University of South Florida in Tampa has been fired because she described herself as a KKK member on her Twitter biography. 26-year-old Presley Garcia claims one of her friends added that description to her account back in 2015, that she wasn't aware of its true meaning back then, and that she hasn't used the account in years. Garcia told investigators she actually deleted the app on her phone and thought the account was also deleted. Of course, you know that's not how Twitter works. In his letter recommending her firing, the USF police chief said Garcia's actions could bring harm to other officers who've come under increased scrutiny during the social unrest inspired by police violence and protests by the Black Lives Matter movement. After she was fired, Garcia told the Tampa Bay Times she was disappointed by the lack of support from fellow officers. She also said she's not a racist or a fan of the Klan. That's it for today's episode of Sunrise. I'm Rick Flagg, inviting you to join us again tomorrow as we plumb the depths of Florida politics.